0: Awesome. So we've got a super special guest on the show today. Julie Bain was born and raised in Ottawa and currently lives in Toronto. She got her start in marketing in Canada North's Tech Valley with a company called Protus IP. She then spent nearly five years at Concept Share, an agency slash startup that was pioneering kind of this creative proofing software ended up being uh, acquired by Dell Tech. Uh, she then freelanced for a little bit and uh, what I'm assuming here is discover the benefits of working remotely and kind of working from home with different companies. And then you landed a gig on the marketing team at Customer.io, super cool SaaS company in the B2B space. So you worked there for three years uh, on kind of the ops and analytics side. And uh, for the past two plus years, uh, she's been head of analytics at Clearbit, super badass company with an awesome story of grit and one of the smartest growth teams in SaaS. Julia is the brain behind the scenes here. Uh, and she's a powerhouse data analyst with a marketing lens at heart. Uh, so today she's going to a bit on data warehousing and how you know marketers no longer need to be intimidated by it uh, julie it's uh it's an, an honor to have you here thanks thanks so much for being here
1: thanks phil thanks jonathan this is uh this is exciting mm-hmm.
0: Sweet. So, why don't we? Um, a, a lot of our audience is, is based in kind of Ontario and in, in, in Ottawa. So, why don't we start a little bit with uh, talking about your journey? And, you know, so you're Western U grad, born and raised in Ottawa. You started working in Canada, where like a lot of uh, our marketers get their start in Ottawa, right? Like working for tech companies, that IP space in, in Ottawa. And now you work remotely. You're still based in Canada, but you work for a US uh, company in a SaaS space. So, why? did you make the the first leap to to remote a few years ago? And and talk a bit about kind of working for a U.S. SaaS company.
1: Yeah, so um, it started, I was working in Ottawa for a company called Concept Share, and uh, I had always wanted to live abroad. So uh, my journey started by leaving that job at Concept Share and moving to France, um, where I decided to be an au pair at the tender age of of 27. (laughs) And um, found out pretty quickly after three weeks that that was not my calling. And um, I was able to call, you know, my boss back at concept share and discuss an option of working with them remote. Um, And so that just sort of that is how it kind of kept going. And it started there and realized that I was able to work away from the office and able to make things happen. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Then kind of felt like my time there had passed and I wanted to try freelance freelance work. And so I just, I, I definitely didn't do it in any kind of really structured way. I just went on sites like Guru, all of those sites looking for people to do small tasks where I could learn some new skills or take the skills that I had had and just just try. Um, and I was able to actually get three clients, which I know sounds like nothing, but having never done that work before, it was pretty exciting to get out there and work for three different clients. And it was just a lot of like applications on those sites, reaching out, hitting up people's LinkedIn and uh, offering kind of what I knew how to do, plus willing to try things at a lower rate, which, you know, I'm never suggesting to to lower your rate, (laughs) the rate I did, but that's how I got that freelance experience. Um, And then, you know, decided that it was a lot more billing and admin than I wanted to. So I moved kind of looking for remote jobs, realizing after those two experiences that I liked it, that I could do good work away from the office. Um, And so, I just reached out to Customer.io on a uh, non-referral. It was a remote.io or remote.ok.io. I can't quite remember the site, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's it. And really took my time with that application. It was the only job that I uh, had applied to. I knew it was perfect for me. So just took my time, wrote out the application, luckily got um, intro in and that's kind of how it started. And then once you get in there, then you're working with these different companies and you're partnered with, you know, the Clear bits of the World segments, you know, and so you get to know, um, you get to know people at those other companies and you you build those connections, you build those relationships. Mm-hmm.
0: So you got a chance to work with a few companies doing the freelance gig and before that you were at uh, a smaller company in, in Ottawa, Concept Share wasn't uh, like over a hundred people. So you went to Customer IO after that, which was also typically like a startup sized company. Now at Clearbit, you're also like a small tight knit team. Um, so why don't you touch a little bit on like why you've decided to sort of stay in that startup sort of SMB sized of team, as opposed to like, you know, with the wealth of experience that you have now like i'm sure you could you know be a director of analytics at like an enterprise company a much bigger company so why do you choose to like stay with smaller teams
1: um i appreciate that <laughs> um so i've only ever worked at small companies and um i like to move fast smaller companies move fast and i think one of one of the things i love the most about early in my career is working at a smaller company is the ability to be able to try different things and i think and i don't have any firsthand experience with this so i can't say for sure but working at the bigger companies your role tends to actually get scaled back and smaller and your scope is less um you know you have a very specific role and it goes very deep and you do a really good job of that you specialize in that but you're in that kind of lane and the smaller the company you are the more hats you have to wear the more experience you get to get the more exciting it is the more you learn like the last two years my role may be the same as it was at the previous company but i've been able to try different things um work with different departments and learn so much and i think early in your career and i i mean i don't know that i'll ever switch i say that now but who knows um uh it's just it just keeps it exciting and in your your growth trajectory is just like for me personally, it feels like it's just so much higher. There's so much more opportunity to learn and also to make mistakes too, right? Because when you work at a bigger company, there's a lot of guardrails that exist um, to avoid those mistakes, which is great because they've done it before they've learned it. Like they're not going to let somebody come in and just make mistakes for their own personal learning. But when you're at a smaller company, you're making these mistakes together and you're learning and like you're developing the guardrails, which is like, you learn best when you make that really big mistake and that you, you never wanna make that again. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I like that. Like speed is, is definitely a big uh, component of the the startup and, and SMB world. Um, I guess like one of the other huge differences is like budget sizes, right? Like you, you spend your day in MarTech stack world and the, the size or like the, the, the volume of tools that you can use are way different in like a startup SMB world than if you'd be working at like a Shopify enterprise level where, you know, the, the budget for tech is, is way, way bigger. So like that being maybe like one of the negative parts of, of working for a smaller company is like what, what other kind of negative things kind of pop out at you that, you know, maybe at some point in your career, you, you consider. Uh, kind of moving to the dark side of the enterprise world.
1: <laughs> don't know what I call it, dark side, but I think like it's definitely um, you get a different type of experience, right? You get a trained, um, almost like textbook training. Like there are steps you take, there are things you know how to do, and it's very clear how you do it. Um, and a lot of what I've done is like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Okay. I'm going to go to Google. <laughs> I'm going to go to this Slack community and I'm going to ask this question because I have no idea what I'm doing. And there's no one here that can answer it. And there's no one here that's done it before. And so like, <laughs> um, there is some days where I'm like, yeah, that'd be nice if somebody knew how to do that here that I could just reach. And there was a resource and like, there's somebody kind of within an inch of my job that knows what I'm doing and like, can, can kind of help me with that. Um, so that's maybe a downside. I-, I see it as a positive, but I know that for for certain people like that that kind of learning on your own and like figuring it out as you go can be stressful and it doesn't work for every personality. Um, the other thing is that smaller companies change quicker, right? You're 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 still growing and how you want to handle things and your strategy and the processes, they're changing because you're learning every day and you're you're improving it. So you have to be very flexible with that change. Um, again, not for not for everyone.
2: In terms of one of the topics that you, or we've been talking a lot about is this idea of learning. How, how do you t- incorporate learning into, into what you do on a day-to-day basis and into your practice? And what advice do you have for folks listening today?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the only way I've ever successfully learned, so prior to kind of it being part of my job, I took a lot of courses, tried to do a lot of things, and just it never stuck. You got to make it part of your critical path. And what I mean by that is you have to like, for me, critical path is like putting food on the table. So like you have to somehow make learning those skills part of your job, whether it's taking a freelance gig or um maybe it's not even necessarily for you. Critical path is money, but it's like pride or something It's like getting a project, doing something and like finishing to completion and then having that the need to present it somewhere. It's got to be. It can't be the last thing on your to-do list because it will always get cut off. Um, And learning is great, but if you don't put it into practice with real-world problems, it's not going to cement. So as much as possible in your current role, ask, you know, reach out to the analytics team or reach out to something and say, hey, do you mind if I help you? Or even if I shadow you, or if I try and do this with you, or like, just no one's going to say no. (laughs) Like, I would never say no if someone came and said, hey, I would really love to help you with this project. Great. Here's something you can do,
2: and I think that's a such a personality trait for for success. And and what we do is that curiosity, that willingness to to carry some water and to and to do, do some work, expand what you're working on, be more curious about you know um, how did my content on the website convert into. revenue for people leads you to questions that you know might lead you to managing a hubspot instance or a salesforce instance or or what have you uh describe your path in terms of martech management and how you've you've grown in your own tool usage and skill set
1: yeah um so i was very lucky to get kind of an internship Uh, whenever you can that's kind of you know you get to go into a marketing department and every single kind of head in that department wants to use the intern for this role or this task or this task or this task so i got to get exposed to almost all sides of marketing early on Um, tried kind of the product marketing as i mentioned before you don't want to read an email written by me so that just wasn't that wasn't where my skills were the best but just there there are better people to be writing content on the internet than myself Um, But I always loved to do, I spent so much time in Google Analytics and just kind of playing in there and, and just finding little insights. And then when I moved to the next role, sort of managing all of it, again, spent most of my time in the analytics tool set and so started to just take online courses and, you know, while I was there learning, learning on the job. And that's again, why I love the smaller companies cause there's a little bit more kind of space for that uh, for you to learn on the job or at least in my experience. And so learned kind of a little bit of SQL really tiny bit but mostly just kind of like how to think about analytics problems, how to solve these problems how to like set up kind of your Salesforce Marketo Google analytics reporting like kind of nothing super technical at that point. Um, and then when I moved into customer IO We worked with a analytics consultant and I was very lucky to have been able to spend six months with them while they were working with us. And they taught me everything I know.
0: (laughs) Uh, Shout out, shout out to Fishtown.
1: Huge shout out to Fishtown. Um, Yeah. So like I was very lucky to have been able to partner with them and that was sort of where it went from like, okay, to, okay, I get this, like it, it, it works for me. Um, And then from there, it just, you're kind of opens up all the possibilities. And then once you know it, it's like a language, it's it's learning one new word versus learning the whole structure and the foundation of it. And so, you know, it's just me learning new words as I go on, which is still very valuable, but it's different than kind of cementing that foundation.
2: I think a lot of marketers are thinking you know how technical do I have to be you dropped you know you learn a bit you you know a little bit of SQL. Uh, there's lots of tools that represent technical challenges you also talked a little bit about how you know you have a skill set that you learn and you can apply it from one scenario to many other different scenarios for somebody starting out to become more technical like yourself like what is the baseline skill set you think that that every marketer should think of having, and and what they do?
1: Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of resources out there um, about kind of how to think about solving the problems. You know, the five whys and just really getting to the root of the the root cause analysis and understanding the questions to ask. And I think there. There's, you know, data Camp has courses. And I think um, I used to work at Springboard and they do a data analyst course. Like there are courses out there that help you think like an analyst. And I think that that's a great starting point. So understanding there's, there's a million and one resources online for you just to think of how to solve an analytics problem. And like, ultimately the end goal is like, you have to be able to explain this to a business user. And you have to be able to tell them how it's impacting their job and how it like, you know, if it's going up, why? If it's going down, why? And then what to do about it. Um, that's the end goal. So that's, that's all it really is. It's really quite simple, but there's a lot of like technical skills in there that you need to be able to kind of unpack in order to get there. Um, I would say, you know, Mo- there's so many free re- resources. Mode Analytics, if you go to their like tutorial guide, there's a beginner, intermediate and advanced thing sections. If you can go through and you can learn all of that, your SQL is very good to be into a marketing department and self-serve your own questions. Like if you can go through all of those, I think it's maybe, I don't know how many hours, 25, 25 to 40, I'm just guessing, but you know, a week's worth of, um, analytics SQL training, and you will be self-sufficient. And if you keep practicing every single week and trying out different problems, they have samples for you to try. You will be, have a good solid tool kit to get into the marketing world. And I would be very impressed if we hired someone at an entry level or kind of three years and they were able to self-serve their own, um, their own questions that would, that would impress me.
2: Yeah, I think anybody who came in when they're like showed had the you know all the paperwork to show that they're going down this analytic uh route and said they want to work in a marketing department. Marketing departments are starved for people like this right now. So yes. um it's it's like probably in my opinion, it's a number one skill set. Do you do you agree with that?
1: Uh I mean, there's people that I work with that don't have SQL and they're like irreplaceable. Uh, But I would say as a utility player, and I think that that's an interesting, like, especially as kind of an early in your career, you want to be a utility player. So having the most amount of skills and experience and knowledge and expertise, I put that in quotation mark because no one is an expert, but really understanding like a lot of the marketing world makes you a mm-hmm. player that kind of puts it in. And I would say SQL um, yep. is one of those that really helps you.
0: What would you say is kind of the, the day to day, uh, of like a head of analytics. So like, we, we talked a bit about kind of the, the shift from concept share to, to customer IO. So like now, now, now that you've been at Clearbit for, for two plus years now, um, the folks that are wondering like, what, what the heck does that mean? Like being head of analytics, uh, at a B2B SaaS company, walk us through like, uh, a day in the life of Julie.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if everyone wants to know in the entire life, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think my role has transitioned. So I've been lucky enough to work with uh, two team members who are really great at analytics and do a lot of the kind of front end. So the reporting and the analysis part. And so my job has, has kind of changed to be sort of call it the force multiplier. So I maintain our instance of dbt which is essentially the way that our system works is like we track all our events via segment so we track all of these things that happen on our on our marketing site in our product etc and we push it all to our redshift our data warehouse and then we have a tool called dbt and that's where like the majority of my time kind of is spent making sure that like we take all of that raw messed up messy data and we send in a lot of new data all the time and so like I take that data and then I use just SQL there's nothing nothing else other than SQL that I layer on top of that and I just write models that um, combine a whole bunch of different data sources a whole bunch of different data points and turn it into like really smaller simpler tables that somebody on the other side can digest and it's it's got computed fields it's got it's normalized it's removed all the duplicates and so basically what you know my job is like what are the two people that are doing the reporting what are their asks and what do I need to do on my end to make sure that they have the data they need in the most accurate form and so I'm kind of the keeper of the data so to speak and my job is to get it to 100% accurate. And so every day it's like, okay, well, how do I optimize this model? How do I make this faster? How do I, how do I join this in? Oh, we have a new data request that we need. We don't have not yet added that data source in pipe that in, get that cleaned up, get that ready. And so depending on your preference, my preference is that sort of keeping that data clean, accurate and ready to fire at any given moment so that, anyone can use it and again if you have limited SQL skills because it's been all cleaned up and ready for you you can just do a simple select star and you have this data table uh, that's actually made up of 17 different tables but you're just <laughs> selecting from one um, yeah that, that would be a, the majority of my days like keeping that t- together in all the different ways that it needs to be
0: so very much behind the scenes. So if you if you were like explaining to Julia like six years ago at Concept Share, like what a data warehouse is and why you should uh kind of upgrade from from using spreadsheets, like you 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 probably spent like your days in Excel sheets and in Google Sheets. So like when and a lot of our listeners are probably in there too. I I, I was there as well. And so like what what are some of the, the the things that you should pick up on when you need to realize that you know maybe it's it's time to upgrade from from spreadsheets and, and go to a, a data warehouse potentially
1: yeah so i think when i was living in that world um it was a lot of manual um your data was static and so when you're working in a right in the like you're working on top of your data warehouse you're able that data gets refreshed just as soon as it comes in you're working with you know the most up-to-date data um whatever you overlay on top of that, it just can read in. So you just kind of connect it in and all of a sudden you can access it from a tool like mode without ever having to look at, you don't have to know anything about that. It just can kind of live in its own world. yeah, I would say you know six years ago while I was importing um, CSVs and joining them together with the lookups and my Excel was crashing and that took six hours of my day. <laughs> uh, um, there are systems that are handling hundred x times more data that are doing it at you know one one hundredth of the speed. So like um, yeah, they're doing it faster. <laughs> Yeah. So I would just say, um, it's, it's got that kind of that ability to make you work faster in real time. Like that, that's what I would have wanted to know six years ago as Julie, that that existed and that it really isn't that complicated because we had, we had it, we had our data. I had to get someone to export it and send it to me and then I would do the work. Right. But like, it was just all this complicated kind of black box when in reality, like, tools like mode and looker and tableau like you can just overlay them on top of and clipfolio and you can overlay them on top of these like these data warehouses and just get your data and you don't really need anyone aside from the initial integration and you have access to it all
2: well i appreciate i appreciate the the plugs multiple plugs this podcast so i'll i'll see if i can get my referral uh there
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we did use it at Concept Share, so I can't, I can't not mention it.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, fair play. Clipfolio is a useful tool. I think it has, it plays strong in certain instances for sure. Uh, I'm biased, but uh, I've also seen it in, in the market to do, do some good. How do we get from, you know, I'm reporting on things to spreadsheets to I need a data warehouse. And if you're not doing that work yourself, like, how do you know the pains and how can you, you know, you go to the doctor and you're referring your belly pain, but your belly pain's really a symptom of a larger problem. What sort of symptoms would you recommend people look for and, know that they need to to mature this part of their analytics uh, model
1: I would say that there isn't an instance I can think of where you wouldn't need this um you know like unless you're not unless you have a hundred customers and that's it and that's all you're dealing with and you're really a small shop then okay that's but if you're in kind of the SaaS world where you're dealing with you know even thousands of visitors a day like you don't have a ton of traffic but you have more than you know if you if you take a month's worth of that data that's already going to be a ton of data in a spreadsheet and then you start trying to join that together um yeah I mean I would immediately say just get it into get it into somewhere a you have the historical tracking You, you get to keep that data forever. so you go back and look at the trends you can do trend analysis like you have all that raw data that you could transform on top. So like if you change how you define certain stages in your funnel, you can, you know, especially with dbt, you can rewrite that query and then it will just rebuild the table so that from day one, you have all of that kind of trend analysis. And there's just as soon, get it as soon as you can, because you start getting that data into your system and you can start doing historical tracking. yeah, unless, like I said, unless you're like a really small shop that you're dealing in the hundreds, I I I couldn't do my job if that didn't exist. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a job if someone didn't have the like segments and richest snowflakes of the world set up. Like, it just if if I go somewhere, I'm putting that in on day zero.
2: Yeah. Yeah, great answer. So th- let me flip it a different way. The value statement: How can marketing make sure that we get all the value that that is put into this way, Right? They're like you're you're a huge proponent. You're passionately defending the value uh, here, and but marketing probably says a lot of things like, "Oh, we don't have the reports we need," or uh, "Not even sure about what what data to to access and get." Like, how do you how do you recommend marketing approach? Uh, these these types of conversations around analytics to get the most value uh, from their perspective?
1: Yeah, the ROI of analytics is a very interesting question. And it's one that uh, it's hard to prove, right? It's really hard to prove. It. And analytics can be seen as an overhead um, because you're not working on the campaigns that are driving the dollars. Um, so I think one of the, like, one of the things that I've always been fortunate is that I've worked with marketing teams who want data and I've worked with, um, you know, other departments that want data. So it's, it's not even a question. It's like, I need to know what I'm doing. Like I'm flying blind. I don't even know how many people have done this. Um, and so I think, uh, that's always been an easy, easy kind of request for me. And it's usually implemented before I get there anyways. Um, but the value, uh, I can't imagine a company being truly successful without understanding how they're doing. And if you don't have all the data available, then you can't understand how you're doing. And so it just feels like it may, it may come across as an overhead because you can't prove the value of it. But if you don't know how you're doing, how do you improve? How do you iterate? How do you continue to like feed that information into your marketing campaigns? And yes, there are, excel and google analytics but at scale and as your team grows like that just isn't sustainable so build it in early get the data in there tracked and Prepare. Yeah,
0: I love that. That's such a great answer. It's 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 tough sometimes to like convince the the early stage founder that like implementing a data warehouse to like catch data from all the interactions everywhere and like invest in 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 tooling to, to get that set up from from day one. So like the the folks that are kind of dealing, um, maybe not just with like founders that are like this, but you know, in in a lot of cases, like early stage companies have the mentality that. Um, you know, I don't need to spend all this time in analytics to figure out what is the right thing to do. I can go with my gut right now and just like double down on that. And like a lot of hesitancy is like, if we invest all this money in like attribution and like analytics, and it turns out that the answers we get from it are just like the same that we kind of already knew before. And like all that money and all that investment in analytics, like really didn't drive any new insights. Um, like what would you say to, to kind of counteract that, that position? (laughs)
1: um so I love when someone asks me a question I'm like I'm going to prove this person wrong (laughs) because like and and a lot of time their hypothesis is is accurate or is 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 close to accurate but there's that confidence where even if you do prove them right they're working off of a proved theory and there you can put more dollars into that um there's things that we've done at clearbit where it was pretty clear that that was the way it was but when we've run the analysis and we've proved that that's the way it was then you're able to get buy-in from other teams other departments and like that's essential because it's okay to like have a you know one person steering the ship but if everyone else behind isn't rowing it doesn't really matter and so i think data helps the rest of the team get behind those those feelings, those insights, and being able to prove like, okay, yeah, we we believed this, and if we look at the data, we can also see that this is in fact true, and this is why we're doing what we're doing, and um, yeah, it helps it helps that buy-in from from the other teams that don't have that hunch or that gut.
0: Hmm. even if the analysis says that like you know it it confirms our assumptions from before like that that confirmation is something that you you didn't have before you invested all that work in in getting those insights
1: yeah and I I would say I mean working at a four-person team you're probably not going to want to spend eighty thousand dollars on your analytics (laughs) stack but when you get you know a 45 50 person team that's kind of where I've seen it exist and like that's 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 my experience. That's when I kind of join into companies kind of between 20 and 40. And that's when we're thinking about it. That's when we're investing in it. And that's, you know, that's kind of where I'd say is a optimal spot. There's no optimal spot, but that's in my mm-hmm. personal experience um, where I've seen it kind of come into play.
0: It's a good time to invest at that point. Yeah what would you what advice would you have for a marketer who is in that size of company or maybe even a bigger company and uh, you know like 9 out of 10 marketers like the number one problem they have is like i don't have access to this data or like this data isn't flowing through into my automation system or into my CRM right like how how do you go about um, taking uh, like all the positive points of like investing in a data warehouse, even though it it might be like a big project, like what what advice do you have to that marketer so that he can build a plan to go to his engineering team and kind of like pitch this? Because in most cases, like you mentioned, like without going down this kind of technical journey and and doing a lot of that stuff yourself, you're gonna need to work with data engineers or like the engineering team. So how do you make that pitch if like predominantly the company has been focusing on data for product reasons, customer type of revenue, but not really marketing attribution?
1: Yeah. Um, I think it has to be brought back to like the dollars that you can can make to it. So there's a lot of times you'll get requests for data and it's like, oh, I just think this might be cool. Eh, okay, cool. Like if I hear it from you again, I'll ask for it or I'll go and put the work into it. Um, there are some foundational like pieces if you're investing in in other channels like paid you should have at least a plan for marketing attribution because every like there is a dollar cost to not knowing what you're doing (laughs) um and so if you can just get to the end like the actual impact on the overall business and you can pitch that to the engineering team i found I, i haven't had much trouble with engineering teams when you're able to say, okay, here's a problem we're having. We have no idea like what's bringing and attracting people to our site. We have no idea what's the most successful channel. We have no idea if paid's doing anything. We have no idea the dollars that Pay bringing in. Like, and we're at Clearbit still trying to solve and optimize these problems ourselves. Like it's kind of an ongoing, as soon as you get in a little bit, you would need to get a little more. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so I think if you can kind of build that use case of how it's going to impact the business and the ultimate goal is like we are going to spend marketing dollars more efficiently which means we're going to have more budget and we're going to grow ideally grow faster like that marketing attribution is to me a no-brainer to get in there and start tracking however you choose to Um, for other for other requests like if somebody's asking me and they want this data tracked and I have to go request it I grilled them. I'm like, why do you need this? What are you gonna do with this? How is this gonna make your job better? And usually you'll get the answers from them. And if they have a good case, you take that case to the engineering team and you say, Well, this is why they need this data point. This is what they're gonna do with it. This is how they're gonna be better at their job. And like, you know, the engineering team gets to be a force multiplier. By doing that, you let somebody else be better at their job and potentially two, three, four people be better at their job. And mm-hmm.
0: gotcha. So if you you mentioned Redshift uh, a few times there, assuming that that was the data warehouse of choice, like when you joined Clearbit, so like if you if you were to start from scratch and you're like building out this tech stack, uh, (laughs) would you still go with Redshift? Uh, I'm assuming not. But like what, like all the options out there, like uh, Microsoft as an option, like you mentioned Snowflake as well, Uh, BigQuery is like so easy to use. Apparently I've like haven't dived into it deep enough. Like what, what would be your, your data warehouse? of choice and how would you go about picking
1: so uh about seven months ago march 2020 was in the process of of making um kind of the uh switch or a potential switch to snowflake um that's just been my preference a lot of a lot of chatting with kind of people in similar roles who are dealing with similar amounts of data and have kind of similar you know, we have a lot of tools kind of loading data in. we have data, a lot of tools pulling it out. We have DBT doing transformation. We have census accessing it. Like we have a lot of different things piped into our Redshift that require it to do a lot of work. And its ability to kind of work with all those different tools, it, it gets slow. Runtimes are slow. When you're looking to query something on demand, it's slow and it requires a lot of maintenance. And the best way I can describe it is like, I need to be less good at SQL when I use Snowflake than when I use Redshift <laughs> because you, you have to optimize your models to run really well. Um, and they need to be as clean as possible so that you can reduce the runtime, reduce the query because everything gets in a queue. Um, and so if you have one long run, then it takes a while for the other runs to go. And so Snowflake kind of works in different, like it has its own silos where it's like, here are your transformation jobs, here are your loading jobs. And, and they don't, intersect with each other. And so for that reason, and for kind of the amount of things we have pulling and pushing and going into our data warehouse, I would, I would move to a stuff like
0: I love it. You just dropped a ton of advice. Uh, probably, um, a lot of the stuff, uh, maybe a little bit over, over the head, some of our listeners, I know some of it was over my head a bit uh, as well, but, uh, super appreciate your, your insights there. I think some of the stuff you built uh, at Clearbit is awesome, and it's it's super cool to like see that you know you you started from this creative ops world and and moved over onto the the analyst side. So like usually you kind of see like these developers journey their way into the analytics world, and they still have like that data engineering background. So like you you had like the creative marketing background, and so it gives you kind of a completely different lens on like using that data for growth purposes as opposed to just like, uh, crossing that off your your to do list. So like, talk a bit about um, maybe as like a before last question here, like, um, you you talked about, you know, working in smaller companies and wearing many hats and doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, How do you stay happy in your career and in your life? How do you keep that healthy balance? Uh, It's kind of a question that we like to to end on with uh, with all of our guests.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think 2020 has been a very interesting year to do that. I would say pre, um, it's uh, it's really about, I work remote as well, right? And um, I love my job. So I could technically sit on my couch after I'm done my work and continue to work until it's midnight. And that's really easy to do. And I am not gonna pretend I haven't done that and I'm not <laughs> pretend that I still don't sometimes do that. Um, but that doesn't make me unhappy. Uh, I think it's really making sure, especially in the remote world, like, you know, I would make sure I had gym at 6 PM. So I had to leave the house and I had to go and do that. And I would make it an effort to socialize, which seems silly, but like when you go into an office, you're, you're going to see a lot of people and you're gonna, you're, you're just naturally going to socialize that when you come home, you don't want to see people. Um, so it's, it was making the effort to go and just to socialize with people and go out for a coffee at least a couple times a week with a friend at minimum. Um, So you had that social interaction and I'm not a very complicated person. Like if I can get to the gym and I can see friends um, and I can do some good work, that's great. Um, Yeah. I think, I think choosing the right company with, um, A culture that works with yours makes your work hours a lot more enjoyable so like I enjoy my calls with my teammates um they're fun uh that makes a big difference that makes a huge difference and I know that when you're starting out you don't necessarily always get to choose the company and the culture that necessarily best fits you um and so I think for that it's it's trying to find moments of fun at work where you can and easier said than done, but uh, it's, you have to be proactive. You're the only person that owns your happiness. And like, if you're not happy, you need to fix it. Not someone else.
0: Wow. Lots of wisdom. (laughs) Great. Great.
1: (laughs) Lots of mistakes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Julie. Uh, Thanks a lot for, for being on the show is amazing. I think our listeners are going to get a ton of insights from this. Thank you so much.
1: I loved it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. (laughs)